Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting books. This week, I'm very pleased to say we have Matt Basso on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Meet Joe Copper, Masculinity and Race on Montana's World War II Home Front. This is a very interesting book, and it answers a question that I've had for a long time. That is, uh, what what did the men uh, who didn't go to war uh, think about themselves and how did they um, re- react to not being sent to war, even when they were not sent to war for very good reason? Uh, it's a fascinating question. I know a lot about World War II. This is something I know nothing about. So I want to thank Matt for answering this question. And I also want to welcome him to the show. Welcome. Thanks, Marshall. I appreciate it. I'm, um, I'm delighted to be here. And you hit the nail on the head already. That's, that's the central question for me as well. And it's a very good one. So maybe you could begin the interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself. Sure. I'm a, um, I'm a historian and an American studies scholar in training. Um, that's, I, I did my PhD at University of Minnesota in American studies, but I'm joint appointed at the University of Utah in history and gender studies. And my work is broadly around questions of power and identity um, and identity formation, but I use a lot of popular culture sources. I also um, I'm very much a social historian and uh, trained as a labor historian and a historian of, of racial construction. Um, before Utah and before Minnesota, I had the good pleasure of going to, um, to Vassar, which colored a lot of, of my work, I believe. And I also spent um, some time in the Army. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, well, that must have helped as well, particularly with this book. Absolutely, right? It's, it, it proved um, a, an important lens, I think. Um, and really all of my work, which continues to focus on um, a couple of the questions that Meet Joe Copper asks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. And thank you for your service. I say that to all veterans. That's kind <laughs> of <a good> <laughs> So tell us uh, why you wrote Meet Joe Copper. Well, after, um, after the Army, frankly, and after Vassar, I got more interested in questions of the way that war um, or the broader war system and and gender formation intersect. And I was especially interested in World War II, but this was a time when there was an immense amount of attention on the greatest generation, um, particularly uh, following Tom Brokaw's book and following the 50th anniversary celebrations, if you will, at um, in, in France. Um, the the popular culture in the United States with films like Saving Private Ryan, The Follow, Band of Brothers, mm-hmm. um, was just focused on the greatest generation. And for Americans, at least to be a popular culture, that seemed to be um, encapsulated in only two figures, Rosie the Riveter and G.I. Joe, if you will, the men who served yeah. uniform. Um, and, you know, I, I did a lot of reading around World War II front lines and home front history. And I was in Montana at the time uh, doing my master's at the University of Montana. And I became interested in whether women had in fact also been able to find work for the first time in a hyper-masculine industry like hard rock copper mining or the smelting that, that flowed from it. So I went looking and, um, I was quite surprised, frankly, that I did find these women because nobody in Montana seemed to know much about them. They had worked in a smelter in Anaconda, and uh, that began this long journey to meet Joe Copper. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the question at the center of the book, as we've said, which is exactly how were how was masculinity constructed during this war for that for for that group of people that did not go serve in uniform, although they did serve. Um, I think I think is a fascinating one. One thing I want to talk about just very briefly is um, what is the kind of uh, geographical industrial locus of the, of the book. And that is the Anaconda mining and smelting um, uh, complex itself. This is an enormous thing, isn't it? Is it still, it's still around, isn't it? 
Well, barely. Um, some of the physical plant is still around, and they've started doing a little bit of copper mining in Butte. But you're absolutely right. It was enormous. Uh, it all began, at least for Montana, in Butte, um, often called in history books at least the richest hill on earth. Uh, <laughs> just an astonishing complex of underground mines in Butte, uh, upwards of um, fifteen thousand men would work underground uh, at the at the high point. Uh, consistently, ten thousand men would be underground. Thousands of miles of hard rock tunnels, all because uh, one former Irish miner, Marcus Daly, uh, followed a lead and um, followed and found what he had heard was maybe under there, and that was a rich copper ore, uh, and that then put into gear the Anaconda Copper Mining Company, which had a huge smelter in Anaconda and also a refinery up in Black Eagle, Montana. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this copper was deemed early in the war to be essential to the war effort, correct? Absolutely central, right? We perhaps forget, since we're not very close to the materials of our lives anymore, but copper was and is in a remarkable number of things, most importantly for America initially was copper wire for electricity mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, there in the big boom. But copper is in a huge amount of military goods, including ammunition. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's the best conductor we know. So I think it it's truly the best is. conductor we know. I don't know. Maybe some yeah. physicists just found something better. Well, but. no, you're, you're right. It's still, it's still the go-to material. And what comes with copper, at least in regard to the World War II military machine, was just as important. And that was um, a host of other critical minerals that um, had to be had for the American uh, arsenal of democracy to go into production. So zinc and other things were absolutely essential to gearing up for World War II, and hence Butte, Anaconda, and Black Eagle were at the very top of the most important war plants in the United States. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the men who worked there, were they often given, um, I don't know what kind of status it is uh, in a time of draft, but they were not drafted so they could continue to work the mines? That's exactly right. This is one of the central issues and one of the ones that we forget about for these home front men who um, I became so interested in. Uh, they were subject to the draft. Uh, an enormous number of American men were subject to the draft. But you could get a draft for a cup. Excuse me. You could get a draft deferment for a couple of different reasons. And deferment is the key term. You could get it for um, being a father or a husband. You could get it for being physically unfit. You could get it because you were a conscientious objector. But you could also get it if you were a critical worker. Mm -hmm. And do we have any idea how many uh, men, let's just say men for now, were given this sort of deferment for critical work in the United States at large? We do know. Um, it's a remarkable number, uh, though it was an immensely fought over issue. Um, so... In the first year of the war, for instance, uh, the number grew to over a million, uh, which doesn't sound yet like a huge number, but because the drafting process was just gearing up, um, it was a significant enough percentage. What was really at issue, though, was who would those men be? Who, in fact, was critical? Who was important enough to the war machine to stay on the home front and therein lay a huge number of congressional battles, um, an enormously fraught situation for men across the country. And of course, in Meet Joe Copper, I focus in on just one group, but I think um, a very representative group, and that's hard rock copper miners and smeltermen. Mm -hmm. And so then the representatives of the, these communities that might have uh, essential industries in them that were seeking deferments, they wanted to get deferments for their constituencies, correct? Yes and no. That's... Mm, that's interesting. Go ahead. It, right? Yeah. Absolutely, they did. Especially the the plants, um, the the factories themselves that really needed the manpower, a term that they used um, and that was used in official policy to keep the wheels going, to keep the ore coming, if you will. So, um, plants are the ones. The managers of plants, the bosses, are the ones that officially put in the deferment request and the paperwork. And then there was local boards in every small community in the United States that would adjudicate these cases. Um, these are, of course, the draft boards. 
people at home really did have two minds of this. In the first instance was the wife or the mother um, or the other relative or maybe even the neighbor that, that of course didn't want to see these men go. And yet there was a strong feeling that this was the responsibility that men had. It was an obligation to serve in uniform. Mm-hmm. The men too, many of them did not want to go to World War II. And that's an important truth that we've forgotten about World War II. Since it's the good war, we believe that everybody, of course, just wanted to go fight, right? That was every man that is. Mm-hmm. But in fact, men didn't want to leave behind their families. Mm-hmm. Uh, many men did not want to put their lives at stake. And frankly, going into the military for many men would be a hardship for multiple reasons, including a financial hardship. Uh, So it was a really fraught, difficult situation for these men, too. They knew that people were watching them and wondering whether they had what it took to serve in the military, or at least that was the perception, their perception of how they were being judged day in and day out during World War II. Mm -hmm. So for many of them, being given this deferment, even though they were in essential industries, was felt to be a kind of diminution of status or masculinity. That's precisely correct. And for copper men in particular, this was um, a huge challenge. But, you know, I really believe this was the case for most men around the country. Copper men argued that they were the manliest of all men, Mm -hmm. right? And also the most essential, and thus they deserved the most credit as men. So they did not feel like they should be looked at askance. They felt like what they were doing was as important. And they also felt for a long time during the war that work in the copper industry was as dangerous as some work in the military. Now, here's where we get the more complicated picture of the World War II home front from a different angle. We think of the greatest generation and the men who served as all co-equivalent, but that was not the case at all for people during World War II who judged a man by what he did in the military, particularly whether he was on the home front or the front lines. So there was an enormous amount of jockeying for masculine status, both within the workforce where men judged each other and really across the spectrum of different wartime occupations, including soldiering, where within the ranks and also outside of the ranks, people judged whether Um, Well, what kind of man you were. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Were there men in the mines and more generally who uh, refused this deferral and uh, asked to serve? There absolutely was. And this is a big part of the book is trying to figure out the relationships among these men. So some men um, said, I want to go. And for these men, um, everyone basically agreed they should have the opportunity. And yet the government with mining in particular and just a couple of other industries um, early in the war tied them to their job. Mm -hmm. They said, no, you don't have the choice here. The government decides where you serve. For young men in particular, this was um, especially challenging if they wanted to go. On the other hand, a lot of men entered the mines, and this was the perception of the public, to avoid the draft. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden you have an occupation that prior to the war – was considered among the most dangerous and manly positions um, in the entire country, now being used as a place where people can hide from actually serving in uniform. Did people actually hide from serving in uniform in the mines, or was that simply a kind of popular myth? No, they absolutely did. There's no question about it. Uh, People entered the mines because it was a deferred occupation. Um, Perhaps even more entered the smelters because it felt like a safer, easier job. Um, one that that didn't have that kind of unknown factor of fear that involves going underground uh, to to mine copper, um, to do hard rock mining. So a huge number of men, relatively speaking, entered occupation so they could avoid going into the military. We have to remember that prior to the initial peacetime draft, when people were pretty sure that that was going to occur, a huge number of men um, and women went off and got married. You know, there's a report of lines on both coasts stretching around the block, people waiting for hours just to get their marriage license because everybody knew that at least initially this would be a deferrable act. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you were married, you wouldn't be serving in the military initially. Likewise, we have a huge boom uh, early in the war in pregnancies. 
mm-hmm. because if you were a father, that was the surest way, especially if you were in that most important age range that the military wanted. Being a father was a way of staying out of the military. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Does Tom Brokaw mention any of this? <laughs> you know, he hints at some of it. He hints at some of it. So um, The Greatest Generation is a fascinating book, but a lot of what I find most fascinating does get left out. Now, I, in fact, I, I begin Meet Joe Copper with Tom Brokaw's dad. Mm-hmm. Um, so Tom Brokaw's dad, Red Brokaw, was in the age range that the military was interested in. And of course, The Greatest Generation, two-thirds of it is about men who serve in uniform, and a third of it is about Rosie the Riveter, the women who right. went to work in the factories and fields. But Red Brokaw is missing, except for in that introduction. Red Brokaw, in fact, is a home front man. Mm-hmm. He went in front of the draft board, had a letter from um, where he was working, and was given a deferment. And Tom Brokaw says that's the first time he ever remembers his mom crying when mm-hmm. his dad came back home. By all accounts, he is a remarkable man. And certainly a remarkably patriotic man, but he served on the home front during World War II. Right. Well, why did she cry? I think a lot of people cried, honestly. I, you know, it's hard for us to remember that everybody went in front of this board with a real chance of going into the military. Mm-hmm. Um, she cried because she was going to get to keep him. Right. Right. That he was going to stay with their family the entire war. And for many families, this was not going to be the case. So if we can just put ourselves back into that place and think about the remarkable emotions associated with this, this was a global war, um, as as you very well know, Marshall. You know, this was a remarkable undertaking, and people knew it was going to be la- last for a long time, and that pe- lives were going to be lost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that draft board decision. Um, colored so many lives mm-hmm. during World War II. I, I think my grandfather on my um, father's side got a deferral. He was a rancher and farmer. If I, right. I don't know for a fact. It was never discussed, but he did not serve in uniform uh, during World War II. He did, however, at the end of the war, um, I, I want to say manage, because that's more of what it was. He managed German POWs in Kansas. He got a bunch oh. of them. <laughs> that's completely fascinating, right? Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, you know, when I've gone around and talked about Um, meet Joe Copper and talked about what this book really is, which is a book about America's home front men. Always, wherever I, wherever I lecture, wherever I discuss this book, people come up afterwards and say, you're talking about my father Mm -hmm. or you're talking about my grandfather. Uh, It was a huge number of men. As I say in the book, more men than that served didn't serve, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, And these emotions were strong, this sense of guilt for many men in the case of farmers, they were an absolutely fascinating draft category. The farm lobby, as they were called, fought tooth and nail to keep farmers out of the draft. And this was another point of deep tension among Americans during World War II. Likewise, a huge number of men that were bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. did not go. Mm-hmm. And this was an especially um, anger-inducing part of the American home front. People felt that it was the government that was the worst enemy of a fair and just manpower system that included conscription and the broader selective service process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how did these men who were serving on the, uh, the home front, so to say, serving, they were serving the nation's cause here in war, uh, how did they defend their masculinity? This gets us to kind of the political crux of the book, the ways in which they and their representatives in unions and, th- and, and such uh, attempted to kind of maintain their status against this assault. That's right. What they chose to do, they had a decision to make. Would they follow the government's dictates and what the corporations and popular culture and really everyday American culture were saying, which is the responsibility of every American, but especially American men, was to sacrifice for the war. And by sacrifice, we mean you need to follow what our dictates are, what we expect you to do. You cannot strike. You cannot um, have any labor agitation. You just need to be peaceful and go to work every day without complaining without asserting your rights, none of that business. Instead, men on the home front chose to follow an earlier masculine practice, at least working class unionized men did. And that is the masculinity that really came to full fruition during the Great Depression, a more militant, organized labor 
working class masculinity. And this masculinity was at odds with that sacrificial masculinity that the government and corporations and others, popular culture really expected out of men. But it was a masculinity that working class men felt served them better and a masculinity they had fought long to establish, one which gave them much greater benefits in the workplace, higher wages, vacations, a masculinity that they felt could last Mm -hmm. and continue to serve them. And perhaps equally importantly, they felt, and this was really their belief, that would be uh, the masculinity that would help their brothers and co-workers and other loved ones on the front lines, the men who were serving in uniform that would be coming back to these factories and plants. Mm-hmm. We don't really think, or at least I don't really think about labor unrest during the war, but there was quite a bit of it, wasn't there? There was. It's one of the hidden stories of the greatest generation. Um, the wartime labor front, even though there was a no-strike pledge signed by um, the vast majority of, of CIO and AFL unions, uh, was tumultuous. There was an enormous number of strikes, both official strikes and unofficial wildcat strikes, um, that were constantly causing delay to the wartime engine. Mm-hmm. And can you talk just a little bit about those? I mean, the ones that at, at the Anaconda Complex, we'll talk about those, but were they, can you talk about them around the nation? Are there any very large ones that we should know about? Absolutely. The most famous one is of, um, of coal miners. Uh, in fact, John L. Lewis's uh, United Mine Workers uh, went out on a massive strike to the great consternation of really the entire nation. I mean, this was front page news. These strikes and labor actions were not buried in all instances. And Lewis, in particular, was a thorn in Roosevelt and the Roosevelt administration's side because he refused to follow these dictates openly and publicly. He felt that labor was really going to lose the gains it had made during the Great Depression. That's just one strike. There are strikes um, in every sector of industry. When you start looking at the National Labor um, Review Board's records, you can find strikes among cigar makers Mm -hmm. and pipe fitters, strikes among streetcar workers and um, dock hands, strikes among women, strikes among men, strikes by workers of color, strikes by white folks. Mm-hmm. Um, everywhere there were strikes in the United States during World War II. Mm-hmm. We really don't hear very much about this. At least I haven't heard very much about it in the material that I've read uh, about the war. I'm not an expert on the home front, but it, it, it is somewhat surprising, isn't it? It is, right? Because it doesn't fit with that picture of the greatest generation. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the greatest generation mystique is that they sacrificed for our country. But these folks were ordinary Americans that were trying to do the best that they could, and they really believed keeping the power of organized labor strong against what they felt were corporate encroachments, Mm -hmm. right? They thought that companies were using the war to make immense profits and to tamp down the ability of ordinary American workers to fight for their rights. Mm -hmm. And they were frankly correct. Mm -hmm. Companies made huge profits. And workers, though they gained um, in very significant ways, uh, unionized workers during World War II grew, the number of unionized workers, the power of workers arguably did not. Now, that's a debatable point and a big part of the kind of historiography of the New Deal and mid-century America. Um, But the war... Um, arguably saw losses for um, organized labor. Mm-hmm. I mean, this brings us to a, another point about the way in which, um, and we will come back to uh, the Anaconda Mine in a second, but I'm interested in the ways in which the image of World War II has changed and of the military over the last 60 or 80 years. Um, that I think that it's pretty well established that there was deep ambivalence on the part of the American public about entering World War II, especially the European front. That this was not something that all Americans really thought was a very good idea, even those in uniform. No, that's right. We need to recall that it it takes a direct attack on our soil, if you will, on um, you know the, the base in Pearl Harbor mm-hmm. for America to go to war. And there was plenty of instances prior to that that in other wartime scenarios probably would have drove drove us to to go to war. Mm-hmm. The war in Europe had been going for over a year, 
right? I mean, it had been going for a long time, and the concern about it had been going for a long time. We knew about um, the difficulties, and that was the way it probably would have been put, that Jews were facing in Europe. We knew about what Hitler was doing. Um, of course, we didn't know everything, but we knew an awful lot, and that did not drive us to war. What drove us to war was the fight in the Pacific, not in the European theater. Right. Yeah, and I think that's interesting. There's a book that I like that I read a long time ago by a fellow named Paul Fassell called Wartime. Are you familiar with this book? I am. Yes, and it, and it discusses uh, – and he was a veteran, a combat veteran. He discusses the sort of ambivalence that people had toward the entire thing. They really did, and this is an old labor story that you're precisely correct in saying – We've forgotten. When we come out of World War One, first off, Americans don't want to go to World War One. We delay entry even longer. We see Europe as a place of festering old aristocratic wounds, if you will, of course, right? We, we, why would we want to get involved in these battles? It's not a bad uh, question. <laughs> right? These ridiculous fights. And so we stay out of World War I until finally we, we get in, as you know, and we decide that, well, maybe we can remake the world. Uh, into a better place, a more peaceful place, a place on the American model. That doesn't happen um, with the League of Nations or anything else. And America is deeply isolationist uh, through the 1930s, at least in in sort of public sentiment, um, if not in economic and other um, actualities. Uh, so it takes a long time to get into World War uh, two and it also uh, people are deeply ambivalent about, of course, sending their sons and husbands and such across uh, to Europe again or to the Pacific. Um, so it's a, it's a um, very isolationist America on the eve of, of World War II. Mm-hmm. I, I, if we can continue along uh, those lines just for a second, and this is only in my own recollection, my father was in the military and his brothers were in the military. My uncle served in Vietnam. And, um, uh, and this goes to the point of how the image of World War II has changed and how our image of the military has changed. To that generation of people, and I heard them talk about it a lot, the the army particularly was the example of the most inefficient organization <laughs> on earth. That all of them came away from it with the notion that the army was a disaster, and and it just wasn't something uh, to be uh, to to really even be praised. That it just was it, it, there was just things seriously wrong with the American military, and 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 uh, and I just. It's interesting how sometime in the 80s, I guess it's Reagan era, that all that seemed to change. Did you, did well, you- it really does. Um, you know, it changes one time in the 80s, but it's changed prior to that. We kind of have this cyclical relationship to the military. Um, and arguably right now we're at a moment when we think the military is actually quite a remarkable organization um, though yeah. there's been questions cast over the last 10 years, but a remarkable organization that most American men at least don't want to volunteer for. Right. Right. Um, and that's, that's part of the issue at the heart of your question. What are the perceptions of the military on the cusp of world war two? The military is so small. I mean, it is tiny, 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 tiny that most Americans don't even have a strong feeling about it. <laughs> our, our equipment is antiquated. Um, we've, you know, our constant defense spending now was not the case during the Great Depression or the 1920s at all, right? We're just not interested in keeping a large standing military. This is not that long ago. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of amazing. Right. Coming out of World War II, our perceptions of the military really change. Um, there's still c- deep concerns about the effectiveness and efficiency of the military, but the actual service of ordinary Americans you know, with the GI Bill in particular, it's seen as something that was good for people and good for the country, with, of course, the thought that we lost so many. Mm-hmm. Um, so service in the military becomes, in the Cold War, much more common. Um, and through Vietnam and really into today um, with the changes that, that we've discussed. But the 80s, you're correct, was a rebirth of a reinvigorated sense that the military was a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially following Vietnam. Well, it kind of entered the lexicon that are the, uh, I don't know if it's an expression or term or what it is. Uh, FUBAR. That, That's that, right. that has its origins in World War II, doesn't it? It, as far as I know, it does. Right. And, you know, famously you've got, um, books and films, uh, like catch 22 
that really describe the kind of sometimes idiocy of the military, right? The insanity of bureaucracies like this and of military leaders in particular. But yeah, in particular, excuse me. But there's, there's a hidden story that we don't talk about that much, but that veterans talk about about the actual realities of service in the military. Yeah. No, I heard some of these stories and uh, they were uh, almost always ones of um, things being foobar. That's right. Just things were just not working out right and they could not work out right. Now, again, these are (laughs) Korean war veterans and um, these are Korean war veterans and Vietnam era veterans. So perhaps it was different then. Um, So uh, let's move back to the book itself. Then that was an interesting digression. Uh, one of the things the government was interested in doing when they faced a labor crisis or a labor shortage was moving in people that traditionally demographics that traditionally had not worked in these industries. And here I'm particularly thinking of um, uh, minorities, particularly blacks and women. Uh, how did the uh, men who worked in the Anaconda complex and elsewhere respond to this? Well, um, our historic version of this, the greatest generation story, and frankly, the story that's told in, in most history textbooks is that there was, um, some frustrations, some grumbling and grouching and so on, but um, Americans knew that they had to pitch in. And the story, at least in regard to women in particular, but also to a lesser degree to um, communities of color, is usually that it was the industrial leaders, um, the factory owners and bosses, that the ones that were really slow on the uptake. They just didn't think women could do the job. They didn't want to go to the expense of building separate bathrooms and change houses and locker rooms and such. Until finally they realized they needed more hands on deck. Um, and sometime around, oh, mid-1942, so well after Pearl Harbor, things start to change dramatically. And the tiny number of jobs that women were initially allowed to apply for on the home front um, absolutely um, balloons. And so the number of women balloon as well. And this goes hand in hand with a huge popular culture um, propaganda campaign by the government to get women into um, factories to turn women into Rosie the Riveters. With people of color, there's a similar campaign, and the story is uh, certainly told in a much more sophisticated way in the historiography, where there is resistance to people of color um, by some on the home front, some home front workers. Micho Copper um, very much backs that up uh, with workers of color um, in particular, there is a a deep um, anxiety about having uh, men of color in the Montana copper industry and color itself. The question of race is a big part of this book. And these were immigrant men. So they had their own racial history. Women, that was just a bridge too far, uh, (laughs) frankly, Um, for copper men who had staked so much of their self-worth Um, So much of the wages they received and the psychological wage they got for being men in a masculine industry, they did not want to work next to women. Um, Women could be in the offices perhaps, but they did not want to see women on the factory floor, uh, the smelter plant floor, and certainly not in this masculine sacred space of an underground mine. Mm -hmm. So there was active opposition to the importation, so to say, of these two groups into this workforce. Deeply active, deeply active. And this is really where Meet Joe Copper became a book. I said earlier, I went looking for Rosie the Riveter and found her, (laughs) but I didn't find her uh, until 1944 in Montana. Um, Women did not enter the kind of typical masking occupations on the Montana Copper home front until the spring of 1944 in Anaconda. And then I found out later they entered a year earlier up in Black Eagle. But that spring 19, I was astonished, right? The story of Rosie the Riveter is much earlier. By then, Rosie the Riveter, by 1944, she's a huge part of the American labor force. But these men in the Anaconda smelter were fighting it tooth and nail. Um, so they did get into the factory uh, in these two places, Black Eagle and Anaconda. But it took an awful long time. And I found that across the nation – that same resistance occurred at different places um, to different levels, but broadly women were allowed to enter the factories much earlier than they had been in, in Montana. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and what is the case with people of color? Did people go with and strike to keep people of color? I mean, to what did the white folks do? Well, the white folks in Montana um, and across the country launched these strikes we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that was a severe step to take. Prior to that, the more silent part of the story is that um, the white men that people meet Joe Copper and that are the home front men we've been talking about, uh, many, many fought long and hard in the back rooms in conversations with management and with government representatives to keep men of color out. They did not want to work next to men of color for a variety of crucial reasons. The first is that they were racist. And we need to acknowledge that, Mm -hmm. right? Um, They had a deep racial animosity towards people of color. Not every American did, but a huge number did of the greatest generation. Mm -hmm. Secondly, they really did believe that if they allowed men of color to enter um, the factories and mines, that it would drive down their wages. Mm -hmm. They knew the situation that faced men of color. They knew the typical work that men of color uh, received, they knew the lives of black Americans, um, not in detail, but they knew enough and they did not want to become those men. And they really believed that that could possibly be. So it was the irrational fears of racism, the hideousness of racism, but also the material realities of the way that race worked in the capitalist marketplace Mm -hmm. in the United States that drove this engine to keep men of color out of places like the Anaconda and Black Eagle smelters and the Butte mines. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So one thing uh, that I'm interested in is the, how best to put it, the, the, the ways in which African-Americans were successful in actually in entering these labor forces. How, How did they, they do make it in eventually, but over the opposition of some of these white folks, let's call them what they are. How do they do that? Well, this is a remarkable story, too, right? This is a story that we tend to forget um, the, the full details of. Our basic version is that the Roosevelt administration goes to bat for them and says, listen, it's wartime. We've got to open these jobs to all Americans. It's the right thing to do. We don't believe in prejudice and discrimination. Um, and that's part of the story. But they only do that. Uh, driven by the activism of African-American leaders and and um, rank-and-file African-Americans. So A. Philip Marshall, uh, excuse me, A. Philip Randolph, for example, um, famously tells Roosevelt that he's going to bring 100,000 African-Americans to Washington, D.C. to demand equality and to uh, demand their ability to participate in the war effort. Mm -hmm unless Roosevelt starts to do something and he does do something because of those demands, because of that pressure, he puts in place the fair employment practices committee, but that committee doesn't have huge teeth, but it's got enough to really start to open up alongside a major propaganda effort that involves Hollywood, the possibility that African-Americans and other people of color will start to be allowed to work in these jobs um, and, and it does change attitudes. World War II does change attitudes. But we can never forget that the World War II military itself, the very thing the government is responsible for, is segregated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That, that is something that I think it is. I, th- I think for a generation earlier, everybody just assumed that was the case. I think for my generation and later generations, it's sort of hard to wrap your mind around that. It kind of is, right? Yeah. You know, it- um, you know, so this this is the famous story, but the stories that I tell in Meet Joe Copper are both those stories and then the ordinary activism of um, African-American workers that fight tooth and nail against discrimination. Yeah. These are heroes, yeah. remarkable people that said no when they were told, you can't work here. Right. They said, well, I will work here. It's my right as an American. And the story isn't quite so simple, of course, but I tell the story of um, African-American black soldier miners uh, who faced 8,000 angry white miners in Butte in the fall of 1942. Only 30 of them, a handful sent by their government, which said, listen, the Butte mines are ready to work with you guys, your soldiers, your miners, they will welcome you. And they were also told by 
the International Union of Mine Mill and Smelter Workers, the parent union of these Butte miners, one of the most racially radical unions in the country, that they would be okay. But instead, uh, in a story that really has not been told till now, 8,000 white miners in Butte walk out. Yeah. Yeah. They drop their tools and they say, we will not work next to these men. Um, and therein uh, lies a multi-month effort to try to change, which I think change their minds and to change what's going on. That effort, I think, encapsulates one of the real stories of the World War II home front. And in the end, the white men win. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. You remind me of a story that I heard from a, um, a Korean war vet. He was a guy who was in college and he had been um, recruit. He had been drafted and they sent him to officer candidate school uh, in, in the armor corps, in fact. And then he was given his first assignment. And, and this is shortly after the military had been uh, integrated in that way. And uh, he gets off the train in I don't know where, uh, someplace in South Carolina. And there's a whole detachment of guys there. Um, white people, and they—they they, the minute he steps off the train, he's supposed to um, be the commander of this unit. Uh, they cheer for him. They just they just spontaneously start cheering for him. And he said at first he didn't really understand it at all, and then he f- realized that the reason they were cheering is because he was white. Wow! They, they were afraid that they were going to give him a black commander. <laughs> um, yeah, and he said that yeah. was kind of a, he was from the, he was from the you know he was from the uh, the uh, the northeast, and there was less of it there. But yeah, he was very surprised by that. Um, so right. well, these. These racial wildcats, um, you know, that's that's Korea. That that tension among races in America lasts mm-hmm. well past World War Two. Of course, we know that story. But these racial wildcats occur in every sector as well yeah. of the American economy during during World War Two. Yeah. Um, so there really is a widespread um, dynamic in the American society. During World War II, this kind of these racial tensions, and it's also widespread in the military. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of tension among black and white troops in places where they meet. For example, Hawaii, mm-hmm. um, as as Beth Bailey and David Farber have shown us in, in their remarkable book on World War II. So um, it's a much more complicated time, mm-hmm. right? And uh, for me, that those tensions are also wrapped up in questions of masculinity. Yeah. The way that black men in the, that come to Butte and that try to get to work, uh, in black Eagle, they never do. In Anaconda, there's a small group of black men who've long worked in the smelter. And I talk about those men a lot in the book, but the way that those black men are denigrated, not just for their race, but for their masculinity, those things aren't, we can't separate them. Right, uh, right. People saw a uh, man's um, race and his sense of his, his sex, his gender uh, together, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. White masculinity, black masculinity. That's how folks viewed men. Yeah. You mentioned that the military was segregated, and I think that most people remember that. What about the unions? The unions are an interesting example. The International Union of Mine Mill and Smelter Workers, Mine Mill, which is the Part of um, the men that I write about, uh, I mentioned earlier, is at the forefront of the effort to desegregate unions, right? To allow African Americans into the workplace first, but also into the unions. And so these unions, mine mill unions, are not segregated, but in a de facto way, of course they are, because there's no black workers in Butte. Um, allowed in the mines. And the small number in Anaconda uh, were, in fact, marginalized in the union. Um, it seems likely they were not members at all in any real standing. So the unions, which are supposed to be engines of inclusivity, they're supposed to be places where class identity is put first. Right. A uh, person's identity as a worker and as an organized laborer are put first. Those unions during World War II uh, marginalized people of color, and also women mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in most instances, right? In most instances, in Anaconda uh, and Black Eagle, women were allowed into the union, but they had no power. They just had to pay their dues. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're kind of running short in time, but I definitely want to a- ask you this. What, what, what was the result of all this tumult and attempts at integration and resistance to integration after the war? I mean, we have this sort of notion that after Rosie the Riveter, women started to uh, enter the 
workforce in great, great numbers and that, uh, I won't say equality, but a certain, um, um, certainly not segregation sort of dies in World War II. Uh, is that true? No. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I thought too, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, we do know that uh, broadly that Rosie the River went back into the home mm-hmm. after World War II, or at least that's the story we tell ourselves. That's actually wrong on, on two different counts. Uh, she was forced out. That's the critical part of the story. Um, men in the working ranks as well as managers uh, forced Rosie River to leave. Many women wanted to stay in these jobs. If we look at statistics and polls taken during the time, we have countless examples of women wanting to stay in jobs that they found deeply empowering, um, and they loved the pay as well. But they were, they were in fact forced out. Women then returned to the workforce in large numbers just a couple of years later, um, but they returned in pink-collar jobs and yeah. service sector jobs, or they returned turned in the working class jobs they had once been allowed to hold all of this for lower pay. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, not an enormous number of women were able to get white collar jobs. Um, This is one of the the class story that I tell in Meet Joe Copper reminds us that Rosie the Riveter wasn't a threat to the mine manager. She was a threat to the miner. Mm -hmm. She wasn't a threat to the bosses in the smelter, she was a threat to the men on the, on the floor, right. the shop floor workers. Uh, so there's a lot to be said about Rosie the Riveter and, and class, but my argument is that we've debated whether how World War II affected women and women's place in American society, but we've failed to understand that a huge part of that story is that it engendered enormous resistance by men Mm -hmm. to women's entry. And I would argue really slowed down um, in many ways, Mm -hmm. both sped up and slowed down women's eventual um, greater equality, Mm -hmm. um, a slow, long, hard fought process um, in the American workplace. Mm -hmm. And African-Americans? African-Americans did not get forced out after World War II. Uh, in fact, they joined industrial, the industrial sector in ever larger numbers in, in particular places. Um, they were still uh, in places like Anaconda, Black Eagle, and Butte, uh, very, very few. And uh, until the 19, late 1960s, um, a place like Black Eagle didn't have its first black worker. Um, so it depends on where you were. In certain places, though, they made strong advances, at least in the workplace, but it's in the residential sector um, and that form of, seg- of, of segregation that Tom Chagru talks about uh, and others that we really see the post-war issue for African-American integration into the workplace. Mm-hmm. But again, Butte, Black Eagle, and Anaconda, um, they were, succeeded in defending what they thought of as their privileges of whiteness. Mm -hmm. And the uh, labor movement, what did this experience do to the American labor movement? Well, for the labor movement, um, which had a dream of becoming co-equal, if you will, with corporations and the government, um, it's a mixed bag. World War II did grow the numbers of workers, but corporate power and the corporate ties to government really increased. And just as much, um, those corporate ties and changes in attitude about worker militancy saw a lot of the advances that were made during the Great Depression rolled back. Um, Another way of also looking at this is that the fight against including women and people of color meant that the labor movement during World War II, excuse me, meant that the labor movement started to have this attitude of protecting the privileges of white men. And it had long had that, but those really solidified And following the Great Depression, a moment um, in which the Popular Front taught us that maybe we could expand this to a much broader American labor movement, um, that meant that World War II, I think, in some industries, really slowed that process down. Uh, Another part of this story that's been lost um, that I talk about in Meet Joe Copper is is America becoming a middle-class nation, a consumer nation. After World War II, our, the way we tell that story is we say, listen, the GI Bill was a big part of that. Um, it took all these men who had gone into the military, put them in college, and then put them into 
corporate offices where they became organization men, the white collar workers of corporate America. In fact, only a small percentage of veterans came back and went to college and took that route. Many, many went back into the factories Mm -hmm. and the fields. And what they did is they assimilated back into that militant masculinity that home front men had kept alive during World War II. Mm -hmm. So if you look at those men, the working class men that came out of the military, it really changes a lot of what we see for the social politics of America following World War II. Mm -hmm. Fascinating, fascinating and very interesting. Um, Matt, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but I don't want to let you go before we uh, ask our traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Well, I'm still sticking with um, a focus on understanding the history of masculinity and and questions of power. Um, Right now, though, I'm working on um, a history that looks at Pacific settler societies, um, that's, and for me, that's the United States, Australia, New Zealand, and, yeah. and potentially Canada for this book project and looks at, um, how masculine formation worked in these settler societies, especially in the early 20th century, um, especially with the question of working men. The second project I've got going, um, is a history of old men. Um, (laughs) Well, I'm one now, so I'm glad to see that written. I'm becoming an old man myself. I can read that Uh, in my dotage. (laughs) Yeah. My sense is that we don't know really enough about – we certainly – American scholars have not – historians have not focused on the history of old age um, nearly enough. And um, in my – for me, I feel like we really don't understand – the historical evolution of this category, the old man. Oh yeah, I think uh, you're. I think you're absolutely right about that. I know that in Iowa, where I used to teach, they had a big initiative. The state said, you know, we need to actually study um, aging populations because we're an aging population, and I think it's a terrific idea because there's no. I mean, you know, 40 years ago there was no gender studies or there was no African American studies, and even today, I don't. Are, are there, uh, you know, aging studies? I, I suppose it's evolving, and that's a good thing. There actually is an enormous field of aging studies outside of the humanities. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's uh, so if uh-huh. you know, we look around our campuses, um, the social sciences, the medical school, every place else, uh-huh. aging um, is a point of, of deep focus and a huge number of researchers. But for some reason, while the humanities has focused a fair bit on children and childhood studies, mm-hmm. um, it's focused barely at all on the history of old age mm-hmm. um, or old age as seen through literature or other aspects of the humanities. Well, good luck on that work. Um, Thank t- you. Today we've been talking with uh, Matt Basso about his fascinating book, Meet Joe Copper, Masculinity and Race on Montana's World War II home front. I want to thank Matt, first of all, for being on the show. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Marshall. And I also want to say that I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I want to thank everybody for listening to this podcast. I hope you have a great week.